My name is Terry O'Reilly. Art takes so many shapes, uses so many media, but with few exceptions, all art needs one sacred ingredient, an audience. Ask the proprietors of Terry's Theatre, London, no relation, at the turn of the 20th century. According to Stephen Pyle's indispensable The Incomplete Book of Failures, on one fateful day, they were presenting Mr. C.H. Nation's pantomime of Little Red Riding Hood for an audience of, count them, two. Worse still, the audience insisted on sitting in the balcony and could not be coaxed down. As a result, the cast was completely unable to see them. One can only guess what happened when the time came to divide the audience in half to sing along with the villain. Pyle gives the literary nod to a Mr. Gilbert Young of Britain, who, at the time of writing, had his book manuscript, World Government Crusade, rejected by 105 publishers. Not to be stifled, Mr. Young ran thrice for Parliament and thrice lost his deposit. Audiences can be frighteningly elusive, even to the giants. There's a story, possibly even true, that Orson Welles delivered a lecture in a small Midwestern U.S. city. Alas, the crowd was alarmingly sparse. According to legend, Welles noted, I'm a producer and director of plays. I'm an actor of the stage and motion pictures. I'm a writer and producer of motion pictures. I write, direct, and act on the radio. I'm a magician and painter. I've published books. I play the violin and piano. Then, looking out upon the pairs and pairs of people in the audience, lamented, Isn't it a pity there are so many of me and so few of you? This is the story of audiences and how they've evolved from honored guests to a cultivated, quantified commodity. It's a common bond that links marketing and art. Without you, they're nothing in the age of persuasion. I want chicken. I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, need. That's us. I see me the board. Hey, great. A toothpaste should fight Cappy. I can't believe I ate that all. Lovely colonial room furnished just the way a lot of girls like it. Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. So often, the greatest ads are those that seem to reach their target audience with so little apparent effort. The ideas behind them are so strong and so deliciously simple that it takes extraordinary discipline just to stand back and let it unfold. I give you the highly awarded campaign for Philips Body Groom Shaver from the very smart team at DDB Canada. Due to the sensitive subject matter, we cannot discuss the benefits of using the Philips Body Groom Men's Electric Shaver. Instead, gardening tips. Nothing says I care more than a well-kept garden. That's why it's important to mow your front lawn regularly. And if you have one, your back lawn too. 
And remember, the shorter you go, the more that tree out front will impress. Next week, have a bush that's out of control. Phillips Body Groom. ShaveEverywhere.ca In 30 years of making mistakes, I've learned a thing or two. One, when an idea is that strong on its own, you need to resist unbelievable temptation to add ingredients. Copywriter Chris Booth and creative director Andrew Simon agreed. The trick with this idea was to keep our hands off it. A key to that campaign, and the reason it can air today, where it might have been pulled 20 years ago, is that it understands its audience. The whole campaign consists of a wonderful actress named Marilla Wex, a great announcer, Paul Miller, and letter-perfect prose based on a rock-solid idea. Beyond that, three's a crowd. Due to the sensitive subject matter, we cannot discuss the benefits of using the Philips Body Groom Men's Electric Shaver. Instead, housekeeping tips. A nice, clean carpet speaks volumes. If your rug doesn't look good, it won't matter how impressive your furniture. And when tidying up those loose odds and ends, remember to check between the cushions. It's amazing what you'll find. Tune in next time for tips on making your hardwood irresistible. Philips Body Groom. ShaveEverywhere.ca Before it created this campaign, DDB did its homework and understood the mindset and the sense of humor of the audience it wanted to reach. It's that extra step and that understanding that removes so much of the risk, though never all of it, from marketing. It's hard to believe that not so long ago, few in media knew or even wondered much about the audience they so diligently cultivated. In the first few centuries after Gutenberg, publishers concentrated more on the content of their newspapers and magazines than trying to understand those who read them. Then, little effort was made to speak the language of one's readers. Many papers were the only game in town. If you wanted to know what's going on, you had to read about it in the editor's voice. As advertising became a new source, and in time, the major source of revenue, competition sprung up. In some cities, a half dozen papers would compete for the same audience. So how did papers react? Nowadays, a paper might research its audience and shape its content for a niche readership. But that sort of research-based marketing wouldn't hit its stride until the 1930s. So in those days, papers remained all things to everyone. When faced with competition, they simply dug in and fought a little harder. Until then, media began with content, which attracted audience. Soon, though, a new ad-driven medium would come along and turn the old media model bass-ackwards. Though some, in the beginning, didn't realize it. Fast forward to 1923 and the garage of one Wallace Russ of Preston, Ontario. A couple of pals had dropped down, Tom Mead of Hespler and Charles Bonner of Galt. The three were puttering with some newfangled radio equipment, perhaps using plans published in a magazine. They'd been here before, but this day would be different. On this day, a neighbor would call to say he recognized their voices coming from his newfangled radio and wondered what they were doing. Spirits soaring from their first ever audience relations report, 
Russ contacted the appropriate government office, slapped down 50 bucks, and got himself a license to broadcast at a screaming 5 watts. Wallace Russ never knew what hit him. Each day, he'd run home from his office job at George Pattinson Woolen Mill and toss together a broadcast, conscripting anyone and everyone he could get his hands on. The who's who of local talent, and lack thereof, paraded through the Russ living room. For the Preston Silver Band, he made an exception. Stringing a mic to the window as the band played in his yard. By 1927, Wallace Russ had enough of his expensive hobby. He didn't see how it could flourish into a business. He sold his license to his friend Cyrus Dolph, who moved it to Brantford, where it flourished ever since as CKPC. In hundreds, thousands of places, the story was repeated. As a hobby, radio sputtered and struggled in basements, garages, and living rooms across the continent. Only when radio was discovered and underwritten by advertisers did it take wing as the world's most formidable new medium. And always hungry for an audience. Smiling, happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. What's your happy thought for today? Well, Mr. Lyon, folks says you can't buy happiness, but you can earn it. Yes, Aunt Jemima, and I guess we all want to be happy. The Jemima Chorus sings a happy tune. On radio, an imaginary brand icon could come alive with her own program. Advertising smothered in musical entertainment. Advertisers didn't have to research to know women made most grocery buying decisions. So how better to cultivate an audience of thousands, even millions of housewives at once, than to design a program just for them? your dishes and oh how they shine, shine without wiping in half of the time and look bright. Right. So don't you get left, get breath. And now Dreft presents Joyce Jordan, MD. Major soap brands scrambled to create radio vehicles to attract housewives to listen. Imagine a woman doctor who struggles to be a woman and a doctor at the same time. Joyce Jordan, MD. The moving and dramatic story of a woman doctor. Of her struggle to be a woman and a doctor at the same time. Whatever next. Unlike newspapers and magazines, commercial radio was about uniting a brand to its target audience. To the listener, programming was the main event. To the advertisers who backed it, the audience was the prize. Programs were a means to an end. Advertisers learned very quickly that radio could attract very specific audiences. Housewives, men of the house, and for the first time on a grand scale, kids. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Buck Rogers is on the air, brought to you by the makers of Popsicle, Fudgicle, and Creamsicle, those delicious frozen confections on a stick. And now a message from the famous winner of the typical American boy contest, Popsicle Pete. Hello, everybody. 
Do you know how many kids got popsicle presents today? Twelve hundred and twenty. Say, maybe you were one of them. Doesn't it feel like Christmas when that package comes? Kids' programs became a favorite with parents as an electronic babysitter, a favorite with kids through its vivid storytelling, and a favorite with advertisers who could speak directly with a new generation of consumers. Don't forget the coupon that comes with that gift list. I should say not. In one explosive generation, radio had reshaped and redefined the mass audience. To the listener, radio was an irresistible medium of information and entertainment. To the marketing industry, it would become a powerful tool, capable of drawing very large and, more importantly, very specific groups of listeners. What few saw coming was that it would change the nature of audiences forever. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is the Age of Persuasion. Thursday, November 12, 1931. Toronto's Who's Who has arrived for the season's most anticipated event. Many of the men wore dinner jackets. Ladies wore evening gowns. Why? Because Con Smythe wanted it that way. This was the opening night of Maple Leaf Gardens, a marvel of modern sports palaces, built for $1.5 million dollars at the corner of Church and Carlton Streets, by the site that had once been Mrs. Sharp's Vegetable Garden. Like so many others who attended that night, Tom Gaston was overwhelmed to sit in a cavernous indoor space with 13,541 other fans. Just as remarkable was the dress code Smythe would impose and enforce through the decades that followed. It was unheard of to see anybody sitting there in a windbreaker or a sweater or whatever, Gaston recalled. You had your shirt and tie. It was an event. It was like going to church. You were all dressed up. Perhaps Smythe was marketing to a more lucrative demographic. Perhaps he was appeasing the folks at the nearby Eaton's department store, who worried that the hockey-going riffraff would sully the neighborhood. For their trouble, Smythe would slip Eaton some shares in the new building. Smythe, never a man entirely at home in the 20th century, and who once himself showed up at Boston Garden in a top hat and tails, quote, to give Boston some class, was observing a quaint 19th century tradition. Audiences were guests, paying guests, mind you, and were expected to act accordingly. In those bygone days, before audiences became the product, audience members were guests and, in higher circles, were expected to observe all appropriate etiquette. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's a story that, during the debut of Handel's Messiah in 1743, King George II was understandably moved during the Hallelujah Chorus. Upon hearing the words, and he shall reign forever and ever. His Majesty rose to his feet, believing this to be a tribute to him and not Jesus Christ. When the king stands, everybody stands, and so the audience obediently rose as one, and has risen for live performances of the Hallelujah Chorus ever since. Yes, 
Audience members, including sports fans, lived by rules. Even etiquette guru Emily Post said so. At a sports event, you need to follow few rules other than those of ordinary courtesy. Arrive on time so you do not disturb others while reaching your seat. You are expected to cheer for your team or your favorite hockey player. But do not in shout insults at the opposing team. Try to re try to refrain. Do not try to Granted, that was then. While Tom Gaston and several thousand of his closest friends fretted over which tie to wear to the hockey game, the relationship between entertainers and audience was beginning its seismic shift. I had terribly good luck. I, was, I had to get a job in a hurry because I was staying at the St. Regis Hotel and I only had $10 left. Ad legend David Ogilvy was fond of recalling that his first big break was working for market research pioneer George Gallup, working for Gallup's clients in the motion picture industry. He taught me the concept of analyzing the factors which make for success in advertising and the factors which make for failure. Ogilvy would go on to champion the techniques and lessons gleaned by Gallup, whose modus operandi would revolutionize the way marketers viewed their audience. His timing was excellent given that a new medium was about to explode across popular culture. The Rifleman. By the time television grabbed the baton from radio as a dominant entertainment medium, audiences were no longer guests. They became partners in a transaction with broadcasters and marketers. By now it was broadcasters and networks, and not advertisers, who created the programs that would attract a given audience. Then, they would sell that audience to a number of advertisers. Viewers, meanwhile, were given programming in exchange for exposure to sales messages. Audiences willingly became the product. Advertisers became the buyer. Media were the brokers. Call it a sort of broadcast etois. Mass audiences had changed trading their black tie, tails, and spats for a t-shirt, cardigan, and fuzzy slippers. Oh, and that big leather recliner over there? That is mine. What's more, it would become interactive, a word few thought about until the media climate began to change. Baby boomers, raised on the Cold War, on Vietnam, and in the time of the KGB and CIA, were braced for a storm. You see it today, whenever you register for access to a website, sign up for a loyalty card, enter a contest, or volunteer your phone number at a checkout counter. Nowadays, it isn't just your attention that marketers are after. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. Yet by crook, more than hook, they have. Those of us among the baby boomers have tended to hoard our privacy. 
Our children, on the other hand, are more willing to navigate the information minefield, learning which facets of their lives to hold close and which to dispense. They do it because they want targeted information from advertisers in return. And we question their judgment as we wade through mountains of spam. Information saves marketers a fortune on misdirected media, flogging people with pitches for things they don't want. And it helps them focus their media spending on those who are most likely to be interested in their brand. In the era of data mining, consumer information is a multi-billion dollar commodity, mined, refined, hoarded, treasured, and rented within the industry. And what do they do with that information? First, they divide you up. Not you in the collective sense, but you as an individual. If advertising is anything to go by, you wear a great many hats in the course of a day. Depending on who's asking, an ad might identify you as a female, a wife, a mom, a busy professional, a parent, a pet owner, a psoriasis sufferer, out of shape, a moviegoer, a homeowner, a music lover, a runner, a driver, a cook, a reader, allergic, time-stressed, fun-loving, tax-hating, undervalued, overdressed, bloated, wrinkled, gray, a bowler, dancer, skier, curler, gambler, acne sufferer, wine lover, and philatelist. You might have tartar buildup, irregularity, poor oil viscosity, lunch bag letdown, lactose intolerance, a man-size hunger, a need for speed, iron-poor blood, or a club face that opens on the downswing. All in one day, and so much of it as a result of audience research. In the beginning, marketers simply quantified audiences by their number. Then they began subdividing by gender and age. Old school marketers, by today's standard, use demographics or the more elaborate sounding psychographics to pigeonhole consumers. Me? I don't ask for either anymore. As a marketer, I'm interested in tribes, a designation made popular by Michael Adams in his book, Better Happy Than Rich. It stems from the Latin root tribute, which may have once referred to the original division of peoples in ancient Rome. To me, a tribe is any group that shares a given interest. A gamer could be a 17-year-old high school student or a 50-something professional. In fact, 17% of Nintendo Wii gamers are over 50. Yet, they're a tribe. A 21-year-old new mother might have more in common with a 39-year-old new mother than with a non-parent her own age. The two new moms are of the same tribe. Designating consumers by tribe is probably a more intuitive and less scientific means of viewing an audience than some in my business would like. But for my money, it's far more insightful. This tribal divide, so useful to advertisers, is the driving force behind today's galaxy of cable specialty channels, which provide a seemingly endless choice for an ever-growing diversity of tribes.
Over 100 million Americans keep guns in their homes for protection. The Second Amendment to the Constitution guarantees all Americans the right to keep and bear arms, but these arms must be accessible. The patented backup gun rack keeps your shotgun at your bedside and is easily hidden by blankets and sheets. The patented backup device slides easily between your mattress and box spring and mounts your shotgun flush at your bedside, enabling access to your shotgun while in the lying position in your bed. Today, audiences are cultivated, divided, classified, analyzed and courted, and ultimately bought, sold, and rented. From the beginning, though, the marketers who thrive are those who never, ever forget that audiences demand respect. I come to you, ladies and gentlemen. It was a point well taken by Winston Churchill who was once asked by a friend if he wasn't impressed that 10,000 people had come to hear him speak. Churchill replied, not at all, because I know 10 times that many would come to see me hanged. Art craves an audience. Commercially driven art exists for the purpose of procuring an audience. Who knew, in 80 AD, as the first capacity crowd of 50,000 packed Rome's Colosseum, that audiences could one day be counted in the tens of millions. For less than a century, our culture has been unlocking the power of the mass audience. First by attracting it, then by analyzing it, dissecting it, then tapping it for information, and finally, selling its secrets to others. As Churchill knew well, the power of an audience can never be taken lightly. Which is why Oscar Wilde had tongue tucked firmly in cheek when he remarked on a play that was generally regarded as a fiasco. The play was a great success, he said, but the audience was a disaster. In the information age, marketers are taking more and more from audiences. So what they give back must be both authentic and tangible. It boils down oh so simply, to respect. In my business, we don't call them consumers for nothing. Disrespect an audience and they'll eat you alive. Especially now, when audiences have become a commodity in the age of persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Terry O'Reilly of the tribe of martial artists Beatles fanatics and Mike Tennant of the Brotherhood of Goaltenders. Engineer Keith Oman, who knows all about you, where you work, where you eat, and where you do your laundry. Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre, who don't do laundry, but they sure can cook. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.